0: I want to just say again uh, to all our visitors uh, just how appreciative we are for you guys to join us. Uh, we're just so grateful to have you. And uh, we also forgot to mention that we do have child care and nursery, So um, if you have children and they're giving you trouble, <laughs> uh, we do have a room set aside where you won't miss the sermon. There will be audio streaming. So if you guys can all turn to page 4 in your bulletins, the text today comes from... Luke chapter 14, and I'll read to you starting from verse 12. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, least they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled." For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So what's going on in this story? Um, Jesus has been invited to a dinner. And it doesn't say in our text, uh, but if you actually read a little bit before, we find out that Jesus has been invited to the home of a leading Pharisee, okay? And so I want you to imagine this dinner setting. All the elite are there you know, the social, financial, religious elite. All the most important people of the community are sitting there, and Jesus is there. And what are they talking about? What's the topic of conversation? Well, it says in verse 15, it's the kingdom of God. Someone exclaims, blessed is everyone who will eat bread at the kingdom of God. Now, before we can move on, we have to ask, you know, what is the kingdom of God? And, uh, you know, so much can be said about this. And uh, I'm not going to say it all, so I'm just going to give you the most briefest of explanations, okay? The kingdom of God was the great hope of the Jewish people that one day God would come and he would reign as king. And all of God's people as citizens of this kingdom would enjoy uh, prosperity, peace, justice. And so let me just cut to the chase. The kingdom of God is salvation, okay? The kingdom of God is the blessings of salvation to know God, okay? And so all the people at the dinner are sort of, you know, gathered, they're talking about the kingdom of God, and they have this assumption that they will be in that kingdom, that they will enjoy the blessings of that kingdom. And Jesus characteristically responds with a little parable. He says, let me tell you a little story. And in this story, he's answering four questions, okay? Number one, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the nature of the kingdom of God? Number two, who will be left out of the kingdom? Number three, who will be included in the kingdom? And then finally, number four, very important, what does that mean for us? What, how does that change us in the here and now, the fact that this kingdom is coming? All right, so that's my outline. Um, so let's, let's dive right in. Let's look at point number one. What is the kingdom of God like? And Jesus, in verse 16, starts the story by saying, a man once gave a great banquet. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is a banquet. Now, in the ancient world, that had just incredible meaning and, you know, just deep emotional resonance. But for us, it doesn't mean as much, right? And I'll tell you why. Because for us in the modern world, particularly in America, no one starves, right? You know even the homeless don't starve right we're awash in food i mean there's just food everywhere and not only is there a lot of food but we have an incredible variety you know just we can eat all kinds of different kinds of delicious food but it wasn't like that in the ancient world in the ancient world starvation was a real problem okay there were occasional feasts there were constant food shortages And so for a huge segment of the population, starvation was a real threat. People were obsessed with food. There was this incredible anxiety about where the next meal would come from. And on top of that, for the average peasant family, what they ate was really monotonous and boring. They would eat kind of the same porridge gruel day after day, every day, without change. And meat. Meat Meat was very expensive. It was kind of a rare luxury, and the average family would eat meat only once, maybe twice a year, okay? And so you can sort of imagine the anticipation and excitement that people had when a feast was coming, right? A feast. You had all this huge quantity of meats, this enormous variety of different kinds of delicious foods, and you know, for us, what's the longest we'll spend at a banquet? Maybe three, four hours, Right? And then we're gone. But in the ancient world, feasts were such a a big thing that it would be an all-day affair. All day long, they would just eat, drink really good wine, and just relax and enjoy. And this would go on not just the whole day, but day after day after day. So what Jesus is telling us then is that the kingdom of God is going to be the feast to end all feasts. It's going to be the greatest of all feasts. It's going to be this incredible celebration and party and festivity. Now, what does that mean for us? You see, in the ancient world, the feast was the satisfaction of their deepest hunger, their literal hunger, right? And what Jesus is telling us is that the answer to our deepest longing, that our greatest happiness, our deepest joy, is to go into this feast, to know God, to be in his presence, to, to, to know him, okay? Now, there's a second aspect to the feast that we sort of don't really appreciate, which is that... Um, in the ancient world, feasts, the most usual reason is a victory banquet, right? It would follow the end of a war. The battle is won to the victory of the spoils. And we sort of really don't have that nowadays. You know, We don't really go to war. We don't really have victory feasts. But we have movies that sort of evoke the biblical story. Like, for example, Star Wars, right? The evil empire has been defeated. The Death Star is destroyed. What happens at the end of Return of the Jedi this enormous feast and celebration with the Ewoks, right? You guys all remember that. Or what about Lord of the Rings? Sauron is crushed. Middle Earth is saved. And what happens? Actually, at the, uh, the end of the movie, uh, The Return of the King, critics were really, uh, complaining, right? Because they were like, there was like 20 minutes of just celebration and festivities and happiness. And so what Jesus is telling us is that the feast will be the end of the great war of sin and death and evil, and that God has been victorious. And I want to read to you a passage from um, Isaiah. And of all the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah spoke of the kingdom of God as a feast most often. So I want to read to you. We actually read this in the call to worship, um, but let me read to you Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, and he will swallow up on this mountain death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. And what um, Jesus and what the Bible is telling us is at this incredible feast that is coming will be the end of, of, of pain, of tragedy, of all sad things coming untrue. Okay, So that's point number one. Point number two, who will be left out of the feast? And here Jesus tells us that some rejected the feast. And this some were the wealthy and the well-to-do. And what Jesus is telling us is that the wealth of the wealthy keeps them out of the feast. And see, we have to appreciate in the story, and this would have been immediately apparent for the listeners, is that this uh, host of the feast, hosted the banquet, was incredibly wealthy. We can kind of see that, just the sheer number of guests that he brings in, right? Just, can you imagine the expense of, of preparing all that food and just how big his house must have been? And so it was the custom of that day that when you uh, hosted a feast, you would invite your peers, your social equals. And so this first set of people that he invites is sort of the people you know, who are very wealthy themselves. They're, these are people of high standing in the community. And Jesus tells us that, shockingly, they all alike gave excuses. They all said, we can't come to the feast. And so what were these excuses? They said things like, oh, I just bought a field. I need to go inspect it. Or I just bought five yoke of oxen. And, you know, this, in a typical family, owned one yoke. So this guy is able to buy five times that amount. He says, I have to go inspect it. One guy says, I just got married. I'm too busy. I can't come. And what are they all saying? They're saying... I have all of this wealth. I have all of these, you know, the busyness of life. And even though they're invited, they cannot come. And compare that with the other, the second set of people, the poor, the crippled, the lame. These are people with nothing. These are people on the brink of starvation. And so when they're brought into the feast, can you sort of imagine their reaction? You know, they're like, yeah, you know, they're celebrating. And, you know, they're bringing in the dishes. And with each dish, All the guests are like, oh, this is awesome. Can you see all that meat there and all that food? But what about the first set, the rich, you know, the busy? They're saying, you know, they're kind of turning their nose up at the banquet. They're sort of sniffing at the banquet and they're saying, you know, I have so much going on. I don't need it. And so what's the application? Jesus is telling us that people reject the gospel because they are filled with something else. That they're too preoccupied with the cares of this life, that they're sort of feasting on the richness and the fatness of this life, and therefore they're spiritually dull, that they're spiritually they're not hungry. We all know people like this, right? You um you go you have a friend and you share the gospel with them and you tell them about the glories of Christ, and their response is, yeah, right? They don't have any real objection, they don't have any problem. But they're just like, you know, so much is going on in my life. Everything is going well. My relationships, my career. I'm not really that interested, right? It's like this. Um, Imagine you are about to go to a feast, a banquet. And uh, the most expensive, uh, let's say the most expensive San Francisco restaurant. And an hour before you go, you break open a huge bag of potato chips and you just start to stuff your face. And then you eat this huge vat of ice cream. And then you go to the restaurant, what's gonna happen? You're gonna look at the food and you're gonna say, yeah, right, filet mignon, yeah. It's not that the food is, is, is inferior, but it's that you've stuffed yourself with chunk, right? You've eaten food that isn't really food, and now you're not really hungry. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, hold on. Are you saying that it's wrong to be wealthy? Are you saying that it's wrong to have the good things in this life? You know, if my work comes to me and says, here's a job promotion, should I say, no, thank you? I'm uh, trying to stay lean for the feast ahead. No, that's not what I'm saying. But listen, okay, what I'm saying, it's good and right for you to do well in this life. It's pleasing to God. But listen when things go well, when you enjoy success, don't be fooled. Don't be deceived into thinking that it's the real thing, that it's the real food. The ultimate feast is coming ahead and everything that is good in this life is but a foretaste. And so, really then, the truly poor, the people who are really poor, have an advantage over those who are wealthy, right? Because they know, they have nothing. They know the incredible excitement and the and they're just thrilled at the feast to come. And so this story then is a warning, and it's a comfort. It's a warning to those of us who are doing well in this life. Don't be fooled. Don't be satisfied as if it's the ultimate. And it's also a comfort. And here's why it's a comfort. When God brings troubles into our lives, when God takes away um, those things that we think we need, God is trying to wake us up. He's trying to open our eyes so that we can know and see the, the, the banquet, the feast to come. All right, so that's point number two, who is left out. Point number three, who is brought into the banquet. Now, uh, this is where the story gets really amazing, shocking. Because in the ancient world, uh, when you hosted a banquet, you always invited your peers, your social equals. Why? The reason why is because banquets were a kind of social currency in that day. It was a way to build wealth. It was a way to sort of increase your stature in the community. Because when you invite these very important people to your banquet, then when they host the banquet, they're supposed to invite you back. And it was sort of a way to kind of climb in that community. And um, we sort of still have this. uh, Not really, we don't really host feasts, but I think we still do this with weddings, right? Right. Um, I remember uh, Christina, my wife's um, brother, recently got married, and he was the kind of guy where you know he didn't want the fuss and the hassle of a wedding, so he's like, I just want to get married in civil ceremony in court, but um, his parents, so Christina's parents insisted that they have a wedding reception, right? And the reason why they wanted a wedding reception is they said, we have to make sure we get our money back, Right? And the way it worked is that all of their friends had invited them to their children's weddings. And so they dutifully wrote a check, gave a cash gift. And now they're saying, it's our turn, (laughs) right? We got to get some of that money back. It's a way to climb. But the shocking, the almost unthinkable thing happens in the story. The host of the feast invites the poor, the crippled, the lame. These are people who can never, never, never pay back the host. They can never host the feast. And so what is Jesus telling us? That this is the gospel. That you come to the banquet with nothing. You have nothing to offer. There's no way you can pay God back. God doesn't look at you and say, what an attractive inner beauty you have. You know, what amazing moral record. What a good person you are. No, he sees you as this beggar, on the street, and he brings you, and he has compassion. This is the way um, Isaiah, again, remember Isaiah is the prophet that speaks of the kingdom of God as a feast. This is the way Isaiah describes the feast. In Isaiah 55, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. That is the gospel. That is what it means to be saved. But this goes against everything that we naturally believe, right? We scream against this because our natural relationship with God is not as a beggar, cripple on the street, but we have this kind of transactional bargaining relationship with God, do we not? Um, One of my favorite movies of all time is Amadeus. Kind of an old movie, maybe a lot of you haven't seen it, but um, Amadeus is the story of these two classical music composers. One we all know, Mozart, and the other is this kind of um, obscure, kind of middling talent guy named Salieri. And uh, the story is told from the perspective of Salieri, and the movie opens with Salieri as this little child. And more than anything in this world, he wants to be this great composer. And so you see him, and it's so brilliantly told. He's praying. He says, oh, Lord, make me a great composer. You know, make my music celebrated in all of Europe. You know, let people praise me, and let me be acclaimed. And in return... I give you my chastity. And what he's talking about is a life of sexual purity. He says, I give you my chastity, my industry. I give you, I promise you all my religious devotion. And then the movie goes into the next scene, and what happens is it comes true. He becomes this great composer. He's in the imperial court. He's the emperor's personal composer. Everything seems to be going well until one day Mozart comes. And the way the story works out is that Salieri meets Mozart for the very first time in this room. And, you know, Salieri is sort of kind of hidden. um, And he's sort of watching Mozart, you know, crawling around the floor with his mistress. And he's sort of giggling and telling these really dirty jokes. And he's obviously sexually promiscuous. He's irreverent against God. He's impious. And and then in the story, Salieri says, you know, that's Mozart. That giggling, disgusting creature is Mozart. And then at at the next scene, Salieri hears for the first time Mozart's music. And this music is just so beautiful. It's so ethereal. It's so, he realizes that this is what music is supposed to be. And if he looks at himself and he looks at his own music and he realizes that he is so mediocre, he's so nothing compared to Mozart. And then he, in the next scene, we see Salieri and he's sort of talking to this crucifix. And in the movie, that's how Salieri talks to God. And he says to the crucifix, you and I are now enemies. We are no longer friends. And he takes the crucifix and he throws it into the fire and he watches it burn. It's a very powerful scene. Now, why is Salieri so mad? Why is he so angry with God? Because you see Get a little bargain going with God, right? A little contract. He gives God his chastity, his religious observance, and then God will give him amazing musical talent. But he sees Mozart, and Mozart does none of these things, right? Mozart is not chaste. Mozart is irreverent, and yet he has this amazing ability, and so he says to God, you broke the contract, and therefore you are my enemy. Now, I want you to really think about this do we do the same? Do we have this sort of transactional bargaining relationship with God? I want you to really be honest with yourself and really look into your heart. And let me give you just two tests, okay? Let me give you just two cases. Is it the case that you, let's say you do some sort of really you know, big sin, you know, so you do something really wrong. And uh, let's say you go to a party And, uh, you know, you didn't mean to, you intended not to, but you get really drunk. You get incredibly wasted. And you sort of crawl back home. And the next morning you wake up and you're afraid. Why are you afraid? Because you think God is going to get you back. He's going to strike you. And you don't know, you're not sure how exactly it's going to happen. Maybe God is going to keep you from getting that job you really want. Or maybe God is going to make you flunk a test to show you. Why are you afraid? Because you have a transactional relationship with God, right? You're bargaining with God. You you give God, your little religious observance, a life free from big sins, and God will give you a life free of problems and troubles. Or what about this? Let's say um, you do have this kind of big sin. You do some, some major violation, and you tell yourself, I can't go to church this week. I'm too dirty. I'm too unacceptable. I can't go. What you're really saying is that your church attendance... Was based on your moral record. You have this little bargain, this little deal with God. God will accept you, but only if you live a good life, a life pleasing to Him. But don't you see? Don't you see what the story is saying? The banquet is free, the banquet is without any cost. And you can't go to the banquet trying to pay for it. You know what that's like? Let's say your friend invites you to this enormous banquet expensive, the best food, and you say, hey, I want my friend to know that I can afford it, you know that I want to contribute. And so on the way there, you're sort of driving and you pull over a Taco Bell and you buy some 99-cent tacos. And you come to the, to the banquet and you ring the doorbell and the host opens up and he says, you know, come into my home. Everything is on me. Enjoy. And you say, no, no. I've come to contribute and you bring your little Taco Bell bag, and you say, "Uh, where should I put it, right? (laughs) What will the host say? The host will say, what are you doing? You're ruining my banquet. Get out, right? Get out. You don't know what you're talking about. And so if you go to God, right? See, don't you see the gospel is that you are an absolute, utter, moral failure. In fact, the Bible says repeatedly that you are worse than you think. Do you think you even know how bad you are? You don't. And so if you go to God and you say, God, accept me, love me because of my good life. God will say, don't give me your Taco Bell moral deeds. You're ruining the banquet. Because Jesus is telling us in the story that we are these poor, crippled beggars on the street with nothing. And God had compassion on us. And God brought us in to his banquet. Do you believe that? Do you really know that you are that poor, crippled beggar? All right, so that's point number three. Point number four is, all right, what does that mean? (laughs) How should we live? How should we live a life pleasing to him? And um, I think here at this point, a question comes up, right? Some of you are saying, all right, I get it. The banquet is free. Why should I live a life that's pleasing to God? Why should I follow the rules, right? I mean, I could do whatever I want. I should just sin as much as I want. I still get into the banquet, right? And my response to you is that if you ask that question, you don't really understand the gospel. Okay? You don't really understand the gospel because here's how it works, okay? In religion, okay, in all the world's religions and all the world's worldview, this is how it works. You obey God in order to be loved by God, right? You sort of give your religious observance. You sort of live a life of more morality, and that's the price you pay, and then God in return loves you and he accepts you, right? You obey in order to be loved. But the gospel is you are already loved. Now, therefore, obey, right? Love is first. Love, or you are already loved without cost, without transaction. Now that you are loved by God, you want to obey. It's your joy to obey, right? You see, in religion, your relationship with God is like employer-employee. You go to work, you follow all the rules, you get your paycheck. But the gospel, your relationship with God is like father and son. You are already the son, You did nothing to deserve the son. You're came. you the son. But now you're the son. Don't you want to please the father? Don't you want to follow his rules as an expression of your love for the father? But if you say to yourself, ah, I'm the son. Now I can do whatever I want. Who cares about the father? I don't care if I hurt the father. All that you're saying is showing is that you're not really a son. Because no son would ever say that. A true son even when he hurts the Father and breaks the Father's rules, is grieved, right? You're broken because you don't want to hurt the Father. All right, so why am I saying this? Well, all of this to say, what does it mean to obey? Okay, what does it mean to live a life pleasing to the Father? And Jesus tells us in uh, verse 12, so all the way at the top, Jesus says, here's what a life that's pleasing to God looks like. Jesus said, also to the man who had invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Least they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What is Jesus telling us? Some of you are wondering, how literally am I supposed to take this, right? Am I supposed to never eat dinner with my friends and my social peers? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is kind of using this particular Hebrew expression. What he's saying is, don't only eat with your um, friends and with your social equals, but also eat with the poor and those who are beneath you. And so let me translate that into modern culture, because, you know, we don't really have feasts nowadays, right? What did the feast mean? See, a feast was a way to build relationships. And the same principle applies today, right? We build relationships with other people in order to climb, in order to improve ourselves, right? We gravitate towards the rich, the beautiful, the popular. Why? Let's be honest. Let's really be honest with ourselves because we look at them in terms of what they can do for us, right? Right? And we ignore the poor. We ignore people who are beneath us. Why? Because they're useless. They're worthless to us. They can't do anything for us. And what Jesus is telling us is don't only build relationships with people who are your peers, who you can get something out of, but build relationships with people who are beneath you. Build relationships with people who are poor and marginalized. Show compassion to them. Now, here's the critical question. And here really is the whole point of the passage. I know I put it off to the end, but this is the really, this is it, okay? This is, you know, this is, this is the whole point of the story. Why? Why should we show compassion to the poor? Is Jesus simply telling us, kind of, these are the rules of the game. You know, these are the rules of, of God. You just have to follow them, right? And, and then don't we say, you know, isn't that... All religions have the same rule, right? All, everyone says you should show compassion to the poor. Is Jesus simply echoing what everyone says? And the answer is no. Okay, listen, this is really deep, okay? This is really profound. But why does Jesus say show compassion on the poor? He says it at the top, right? He says show compassion on the poor, and then he tells this parable of the great banquet that God has invited the poor, the broken, and the needy. Listen very carefully. We are to show compassion on the poor because we are reenacting the gospel in our lives. We are re-dramatizing the story of salvation. That's what it means to live a life pleasing to God, is to replay the gospel in your life in motion. Let me give you some examples. The Bible tells us, forgive your enemies. Why? Is that just simply a rule that God gives us? That's what Christians have to do, forgive your enemies? No, because, what is the gospel? You were enemies of God, and he showed compassion forgiveness to you. The Bible says, um, embrace outsiders. You know, don't be partial to particular ethnic groups or walks of life, but embrace everyone. Why? Is, that, is the Bible just into diversity? No, because the gospel is that we were on the outside. We were different, and yet God brought us in and and knit us into a community. The Bible tells us, um, show compassion on the poor. Why? Jesus tells us the story, right? That because in the great banquet, don't you understand, in the kingdom of God, in salvation, we were poor, and yet God brought us in and he had compassion on us. And that's what it means for our church to be gospel-centered. You know, we planted this church. We are now uh, three weeks old. Um, And, you know, we've been saying again and again, we are, what kind of a church are we? We are a gospel-centered church. We're a gospel-centered church. Um, And someone asked me, what does that mean, you know, gospel-centered? Does that mean that um, you guys are really into evangelism, right? And my answer is, no, that's not what it means. I mean, if the gospel is something that you only tell non-Christians, and then you make them christians then yeah i guess gospel centered means you're constantly evangelizing but that's not what it means the gospel is more than that don't you see in the story the gospel is what we also tell christians and that the gospel shapes our lives the gospel is sort of the fuel that feeds the fire of the christian life it's the transformed life based on the gospel therefore we tell the gospel not only to non-christians But to Christians, and to the extent that you believe the gospel, that you really understand that you are poor, broken, and needy, to that extent, you will show compassion on the poor. And let me put it in the reverse, okay? And the reverse is a little bit scarier. To the extent that you don't show compassion on the poor, that you ignore those who are beneath you and you don't build relationships with them, shows that you don't really believe Gospel. You don't really believe it. It's just something that you believe maybe on an evangelism night, but now it doesn't have any meaning for you. Now I know it's not easy. It's really hard to show compassion on the poor. And if some of you say, oh, it's easy, you're not really doing it. Let me share a little story with you. Uh, Christine and I used to live in Boston, and we used to host a small group. And one day, Uh, Someone from our small group brought with him, and bless his heart, he brought with him a homeless man from the street. He said, hey, everyone, I just met this guy. I said, hey, why don't you come to the Bible study? It would be great. And he came. Hey. And this guy was really, he really played the part. I mean, he was dirty. His clothes were tattered. He smelled like he slept in the garbage can. And, you know, Christine and I, right, we looked at each other, and we we're, like, horrified, right? And we knew, you know, we know, what does it mean to be a Christian? We're studying the Bible after all. It means to embrace the poor. But I couldn't help it, right? And this guy sits down on the couch, and I'm just, like, dying inside, right? Because I'm like, oh, he's so, he's, he's dirtying up the couch. And then the, the moment he left, you know, I don't say this with a lot of pride, but the moment he left, this is my humility, I, I took off the fabric, Um, covering. I threw it in the washing machine and I washed it, right? It's really hard, okay? It's really hard to embrace the poor. It's costly. It's agonizing. And when you do, you understand a little bit more what it ultimately cost God. Some of you are saying, hey, wait a minute. I thought the banquet is free. Yes, the banquet is free for you, but it's costly to God. God had to pay an enormous price in order for you to eat and drink at the bounty of his table. And what was the price that he paid? The price he paid is that Jesus Christ had to stand in our place. You see, this is the gospel. That we were brought in from the outside in the cold. And we were brought in to the banquet. But in order for that to happen, Jesus Christ had to be cast out into the darkness. The Bible tells us that he was crucified outside the city. We were brought into the banquet in order to feast and drink at the bounty of the table. But in order for that to happen, Jesus Christ on the cross cried out, I thirst. We were brought into a relationship with God. We were reconciled with God. But Jesus Christ on the cross, the father turned his face away. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the gospel that Jesus took our place as a poor, broken, rejected sinner for the guilt of our sins on the cross. And when you see, uh, when you see that incredible costly love of the Father with Jesus, what do you want to do? You want to love him back, right? You want to live a life pleasing to God, not to bargain with God, not in order to get good things back, but because you are a son, because you are a daughter, because you want to live a life of gospel reenactment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray to you that you would impress upon our hearts that we are absolute moral failures, that we can do nothing to merit salvation, that we were brought into the banquet even though we were detestable, but you had compassion on us. Oh Lord, we pray that that would impact our hearts, that that would transform who we are so that we would want to live a life gospel-shaped, gospel-driven, that everything that we do would reflect the gospel. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.